0: Good morning and welcome to the Houghton Wesleyan Church. Would you please stand with me and join with me in the call to worship? Clap your hands, all you nations. Shout to God with cries of joy. For the Lord whose high is
1: awesome, the great King of all
0: the earth. He subdued nations under us, peoples under our feet. God has ascended amid shouts of joy. The Lord amid the sounding of trumpets. Sing praises, to God! Sing praises! Sing praises to our kings, Sing praises! For God is the King of all the earth. Sing to Him a psalm of praise. God reigns over the nations. God is seated on His holy throne. Would you pray with me? Loving God, this morning we come before you and humbly ask that you quiet our hearts and our minds. We give you the worries and stressors that burden our lives and open ourselves to you, eager to hear your word. We ask that you be with us, as you are always, but particularly this morning as we join together, giving you our praises. And may we ever be aware that our protector never slumbers.
2: As we gather in this place and uh, give praise and honor and glory to our God, we are here also to, again, connect with each other. So I want to invite you to take a moment, share a word of greeting, perhaps introduce yourself to uh, someone who's not familiar to you. join me in the prayer of confession that is printed in your bulletin. Let's pray together. Eternal God, in whom we live and move and have our being, whose face is hidden from us by our sins, and whose mercy we forget in the blindness of our hearts, cleanse us from all our offenses. And deliver us from proud thoughts and vain desires, that with reverent and humble hearts we may draw near to you, confessing our faults, confiding you in your grace, and finding in you our refuge and strength, through Jesus Christ, your Son. Amen.
0: Our Old Testament reading for this morning is from Exodus 3, verses 1 through 15. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro with his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that the bush was on fire, but it did not burn up. So Moses thought... At this, Moses hid his face, because he was afraid to look at God. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I'm concerned with their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land and into a good, spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Pezazites... Hivites and Jebusites, and now the cry of Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go; I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, "Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt?" And God said, "I will be with you, and this will be the sign to you that I am—that it is, it is I who I have sent." God also said to Moses, Say to the Israelites, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever. This is the name you shall call me from generation to generation. This is the word of the Lord. Be to God. At this time, I'd like to uh, invite you to stand and sing the Gloria Patri as the ushers come forward to gather our tithes and offerings. you please pray with me gracious god creator everything on earth is yours we have nothing that can make you richer for it all comes from you but what we have we bring with the acknowledgement that we live thanks to you and that without you we have nothing forgive us lord god when we want to give with tightly clenched fists teach us to give with open hearts to see the needs around us We give these meager gifts back to you, fully aware that they are small in the comparison to the gift that you gave us in sending your Son. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
3: sitting in the prayer room of wesleyan church headquarters you will note behind me a map and a map with post-it notes those are prayer requests today i bring you a large prayer request and that prayer request is for the suffering people in sierra leone and liberia west africa why do we bring that to you today because the wesleyan church has been in sierra leone literally over 100 years and liberia less years than that And I want to bring you our family, our Wesleyan family of some 300 churches and over 50,000 Wesleyan, your Wesleyan brothers and sisters. They are suffering. They are suffering under this Ebola crisis at this time. The outbreak is focused in one of the areas in Sierra Leone where most Wesleyans live. I'm appealing to you today to pray. God can heal. God can deliver. But at the same time, he's also calling us to do what we can do to prevent this disease and to stop it. The Wesleyan Church has a hospital, and the hospital is in Kamaqui, which is in the north part of the country. This hospital services over 100,000 people, the only hospital for these folks. And at present, we do not even have a doctor in this hospital. Therefore, I'm calling on you to give. We need to give so that we can supply this hospital but I also want to tell you that we have uh, medical personnel from the United States that are going. Next week, Carrie Jo Kindy Kane is going. She's a medical person. Carrie Jo grew up in Sierra Leone. She knows the language, and she's going directly to the hospital to help the hospital to be prepared with supplies that we want to send with her with the funds that you are giving. After that, Dr. Diane Foley will be going. Dr. Diane Foley will be working with... Usman Forna, the national superintendent, and World Hope out in the communities doing training and helping people to prevent this horrible, deadly disease. You've seen it on TV. You've seen the need. And I want to tell you that today the Wesleyan Church and World Hope are standing together with their Wesleyan brothers and sisters in Sierra Leone and Liberia. Will you please stand with us? And we're praying that during this time people may see the gospel of Jesus in new ways and that out of evil may come good. In other words, we overcome evil with good and out of this evil, we will see people come to Jesus Christ and love him for who he is. Thank you for all that you do. Thank you for who you are and may God bless us as we work together for his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven.
2: We do want to be praying about this crisis, and it's uh, mentioned ways you can contribute as well. We also want to uh, to pray uh, together uh, tomorrow. We, along with the college and the church, have combined together to uh, host a prayer event, eight a.m. tomorrow to eight p.m. And uh, we are focusing primarily on uh, people who are connected to. Us, who are going through some serious health issues, uh, doesn't isn't limited to that, but it's one of the catalysts for it. We certainly want to use this time to pray about the situation in West Africa, as well as situations around the world and other things in our own lives and in uh, the lives of uh, those we love and care for. And so we, there's information in the bulletin about it. Uh, there will be people there from the staff, as well as deacons from the uh, college who will be in the room Throughout those 12 hours, you can feel free to come and go. You can come and go more than once, stay for as little or as long as you like, but to come and pray, and we'll be meeting at the prayer chapel in the basement of Wesley Chapel on campus. We also want to uh, to pray for the many needs that are a part of our congregation and beyond, and we did receive word this morning that Al Rain, who, a uh, long time uh, head of food service here, died yesterday and so we want to pray for to link the lengthy illness, we want to pray for his family uh, in their loss as well as the other burdens and concerns on our hearts. As we pray together, if you would like to uh, use the altar rail as a place where you come and offer your prayers, please join me. Father, we come to you today because you've called us to pray. This is not something that we have initiated and begged you to let us do. It is something you initiate and embrace us as we pray. This morning, we pray for our world. We think of the crisis in West Africa. And we pray that you will bring an end to the virus, to, uh, to the uh, outbreak of that, to the damage that has been done, the hurt, the pain, death. We pray, Father, that you will bless those who are in places of medical help, protect them, give them wisdom about um, how to be a part of the solution. Thank you for those who are giving of themselves and risking and sacrificing to go, to be there. We pray for your healing grace. We pray, Father, for other places of the world where there is great difficulty, pain, violence. We think about the conflict that's surrounding the, uh, the movement of ISIS. It's hard for us to really comprehend the kind of behavior that we have witnessed but we know you're greater and we know that you are at work in spite of what is happening and we know that the power of your spirit can bring an end to this and we pray that you will we pray that you would bless your people, your church, in those places and throughout the world particularly where there is serious opposition something we know very little, if anything, about. Protect our brothers and sisters. Give them courage and strength. Help them to know of our prayers and our support, and may their witness inspire us as we live for you. Father, we pray for Mick and Nora Suman, and thank you for their years of service in in your kingdom in many places of the world, continue to bless them, give them wisdom as they look to the future. Open the doors that you desire for them. And we pray for the needs that are right around us. Needs of our church. Needs that are bigger than just this place. Needs that are in our lives and the lives of those we love. We pray for your, your comforting presence upon our Rain's family and upon all who are grieving today. We know that grief doesn't come in a moment and then just disappear. It continues. And so we pray for your, your comforting, healing presence in our grief. We pray for all who are struggling with issues of health moving, preparing for surgery, recovering from surgery, trying to figure out diagnoses. And today we especially pray for Bruce and for Alton and for Matt, for Dick and Isla, for Bev, for Edna, for Linda, for Micah, for Bill, for Crystal and Emily, for all the others who come to our minds right now. We pray, Father, for other needs that we represent, issues in our relationships and issues in our work and school, issues of mind and body, Issues of soul and spirit. We pray for your healing grace in each of us. Father, thank you for hearing our prayers today, as you always do. Thank you for your faithfulness and your goodness in answering in the way that you and your infinite wisdom know is best. We offer our prayers. In the name and power and grace of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The one who teaches us the model for prayer, which we now pray together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts
0: Our New Testament reading is from Luke, chapter 15, verses 11 through 32. And I would like to uh, mention that the children may be dismissed following the gospel reading for children's church. Um, and as is tradition, would you please stand for the reading of the gospel? Jesus continued, "There was a man who had two sons." The younger one said to his father, Give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had and set off for a distant country, and there he squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in the whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed his pigs. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I have been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes come home and you've killed a fatted calf for him. My son, the father said. You are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and now is found. This is the word of the Lord.
2: Do you know anyone like that? Okay, so last spring, I said to you, I've got this idea, seemed like a good idea at the time, uh, to uh, have you ask questions that you would love to see addressed in a sermon. And uh, you came through. More than a hundred questions came to me. And uh, obviously, I couldn't address all of those. Hopefully, I'm addressing some of yours. But uh, they, they were, ran the gamut. Now, I did get a few questions that were sort of out there a little bit. I think a little tongue-in-cheek. You know, one person asked, um, How can a uh, shepherd count his flock without falling asleep? Just ponder that for a minute. I'm not going to address that question. Another one was, uh, like that was, uh, if the professor on Gilligan's Island can make a radio out of a coconut, how come he can't repair the hole in the boat? I won't be addressing that question either. Another one was, why does the bank leave the doors unlocked and wide open, but they chain the pins to the counter? I've wondered about that for a long time, and I have no answer for that one either. And someone simply asked, how come the Chicago Cubs can never win the World Series? No one has the answer to that question. I don't think that's ever going to happen. But, but most of the questions were so insightful and passionate. And, and, and it was intriguing to me to, to, to read and to see the kinds of questions that are on your mind and your heart. And I have to admit, there are some very difficult questions. And I have, since I read those, thought to myself, what have I gotten myself into here? And the the bookmark that's in your bulletin today uh, gives you a list of where the sermons are going to go for the next few months. The titles and the questions. And um, I think it's going to be a challenge for us to ponder these questions. You may not get the answer to your question that you're looking for. But hopefully you will get an answer that will help all of us move more toward God's mind. Be better disciples of Christ in our walk with him. One of the, the things that we did, not just to poll those of you who are here in worship, but we also went to our Sunday school classes of children and asked them to ask us some questions. When, you, when I read those questions, obviously in the handwriting that they were children, I thought, no wonder Jesus said you have to become like a little child to enter the kingdom. Some very profound questions that they asked. And one of their questions, one of the questions of one of the children that caught my attention was this. What color is God? I have to say, I'd never thought about it before. Now, I suspect that what they meant was if God had skin, what color would his skin be? Most of us, if we have an image of God with skin, and we, we tend to probably picture God in some type of form that, uh, that we, can, we can see, I suspect that most of us have an image of God that looks like us. Whatever our nationality, that's how we see God. Whatever our race, that's how we see God. God. It's just natural for us to do that. And probably the majority of us are thinking God is white American. He's not. Jesus, God in flesh, was not. He was Middle Eastern. But we have this picture, maybe it's because of the paintings that hang on our walls or the images that we've seen through the years... We have this image of God that tends to look like us. And if that were all it was, say, well, that's okay. But as the more I pondered that question, the more I realized that it's really unearthing a deeper question. Not just what color is God, but really what does God look like? And the next step, what is God like? And I suspect that most of us have created an image of God in our minds that looks like us. Most of our images of God are us to the nth power. This is a little bit bigger, a little stronger version of you and me. That's how we think because we need some context in which to think about things that we have that are unknown to us. And so we get this context of what we know. We know us. The problem is, if God is in our image, we're all in trouble. Because I don't know about you, but I have issues. And if God looks like me... He's going to have issues. But when we read the scriptures, we find that the image of God, the the way God describes himself in words and in actions, I guess can be summed up this way. He is other than us. Completely. And at some point, we have to come to the place of realizing and admitting that our image of God is skewed. Harry Emerson Fosdick was a long-time pastor of Riverside Church in New York City, near Columbia University. And many of the students would come to him for counseling and help. And one day, a student burst into his office and said, Dr. Fosdick, I can't believe in God anymore. And he said, all right, tell me about this God you can't believe in anymore. And the student went on to describe God. And when he got done, Fosdick said, I think we're in the same boat because I don't believe in that God either. That's what happens to most of us. And it happens because we, as David Seaman says, live with damaged receptors. He talks about how in creation, God communicates with us perfectly. You see the straight lines. They come to us and we know, Adam and Eve know God as he is. As much as he has revealed himself to them. The message, when God speaks, they understand it. But when sin enters the world, it skews the message. It damages our receptors. The message hasn't changed. God is still saying to us the truth. We just have a hard time understanding it, receiving it, accepting it. And we skew it and twist it and turn it because of our sin and the sins of the world, the sins people commit against us, all the struggles and pain and difficulties that we experience in life and we see in the world. All of that contributes to our damaged receptors, our inability to understand who God is. And you could almost say that from Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve make the decision to reject God, from that moment on, all the rest of Scripture is trying to help us understand what God is really like. Trying to give us a clear image of who God is. And if the Old Testament particularly says anything to us about who God is, it is telling us that God is completely other than us. He is not just a magnified image of us. He is other than us. That's why when God begins to reveal himself to Israel, one of the recurring attributes, one of the recurring ways that he describes himself, his character, his nature, he says he is holy. To be holy is to be other than common. Common. One of the great sins of God's people, we see in the Old Testament, is treating God as if he is common. Treating God as if he is no different from anybody else. Nothing is more degrading to God than that. And over and over again, you read through the Psalms, Psalm 99, Isaiah 6, and over and over again, even here in Exodus 15... He says, I am holy. I am other than you. And for God to be holy, it means that he is perfect. Now, that's a concept that's hard for us to grasp. We, talk, we throw around the phrase, oh, that's perfect. What we really mean is that's pretty good. We have no idea what absolute perfection is. It's God. God always does what is perfectly right He thinks all the time, every moment, what is perfectly right. Everything about God is perfectly right. And that is the foundation for everything we will ever know about God. He is perfect. Everything else we say about God comes back to that. God is perfect. And so his power is perfect. Every attribute of God is perfect. When we talk about God's power, he's telling us as we read through the scriptures, you see a whole number of places where God says, whatever comes against me, I will win. And we see it, him doing it over and over again. In this passage, when God is speaking to Moses, he says to them, I'm going to bring my people out of Egypt. And the following chapters, that's exactly what he does. Why is it? that from that moment on, God keeps reminding them, I am the God who brought you out of Egypt. I am the God who brought you out of Egypt. That phrase is repeated over and over and over again. Before he gives them the Ten Commandments, he says, I am the God who brought you out of Egypt. Before they go into the land of Canaan, I am the God who brought you out of Egypt. Why does he keep repeating that? Because as powerful and awesome as Pharaoh is, and as the gods of Egypt are perceived to be, they are nothing compared to God. They can't keep him from doing what he wants to do. Pharaoh stands up to, to them and it means nothing. God brings them out of Egypt to remind them that the, whatever the foes are against them, he is greater. I find that a lot of times that's a struggle for us. I often, and I, I, I do this myself, but I often hear people talking about all that's going on in the world with great despair, even Christians. And we see Christians wringing our hands and saying, oh boy, we're in big trouble. What are we going to do? What, what's going to happen? And, and we worry about it and we're concerned about it and we should be. But there is that hint of despair as well. As if it's too big for God. As if what's going on in the world is too much for God. As if whatever struggles we are facing are too big for God. The Scriptures tell us again and again and again, there is nothing too great for God. The angel says to Mary, nothing is impossible with God. We need to embrace that truth. Why do we wrestle with it? Because we live with a puny view of God. No wonder J.B. Phillips wrote his book back in the 50s that he titled, Your God is Too Small. And so often our image of God is. Because it's an image that looks like us. There are all kinds of things in the world that are going to defeat us. But not God. And isn't it fascinating that this God who is perfectly holy and powerful Wants to connect with us. He wants to be in relationship with us. You Think about people who are famous in the world. We would love to hang out with them. Your favorite sports star, actress, or whomever it may be. We love hanging out with them, but they're probably not all that interested in hanging out with us. And the God of the universe says, you're my people. I want to be with you. He says to Moses, as you go forward, I will be with you. He even identifies himself with human beings. They want to know who I am. You tell them, I am the God of your fathers. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. They're my people. I am not ashamed to be connected with them, even though they do some pretty out there things, pretty rascally guys. And God says, I want to be with you. You're my people. And the God who says that about them feels that same way about us. He is faithfully with us every moment. It doesn't matter what we're doing, what we're facing. He is with us. Always. I don't think any of us or probably, or few of us, are tempted to be atheists. But I suspect we may struggle sometimes with being deists. We believe God exists. We believe God set things in motion. But the way we live our lives, it's, it's almost as though God isn't present. God isn't active in our lives and in our world that our prayers are insignificant. It's all about us. We, If it's going to happen, we have to do it. It's because we have, are living with this image of God that we have created instead of the God who creates. And this God who wants to be with us expresses his passion for us In his love. Over and over and over again, God tells his people, I love you. One of the questions that was asked was, what's the difference between God of the Old Testament and the New Testament? And you could go into that a long ways. But the truth of the matter, there is no God, no difference. He is God. And if you read the Old Testament, there are passages there that bother us. But when you read the Old Testament all the way through you see underlying everything is the God of greatness and power... and the almighty God and the holy God says, I love you. I love you. And nothing can change that. Bonhoeffer said, love doesn't define God. God defines love. The nature of God is what allows us to know what love is... In 1 John, he writes, this is love. Not, Not that you love God, but it's that God loved you. Paul writes to the Romans, while you were yet sinners, Christ died for you. God loves you. As Craig Barnes writes, we can't do anything to make God love us more. We can't do anything to make God love us less. It's just his nature to love us. We often think that God's love is tied to something we do our performances, our sacrifices, our love for him. We're such good, great people. It has nothing to do with it. He just loves us. We don't repent so that God will love us, He loves us so that we might repent. And what fascinates me, something that struck me a few years ago, is that sometimes, you know, love is such a a nebulous idea. It's hard to pin that down. And and we expect God to love us. He almost has to. And we're called to love each other. And, you know, we, we do it, but often through gritted teeth. Here's what's so fascinating to me, is that I'm convinced that God doesn't just love us, He likes us. And that's a completely different thing. He likes us. He wants to be around us. He wants relationship with us. He likes us. He may not always like what we do, but he likes us. It's not a drudgery for him to be with us. He yearns for that. No one has to force God to, to spend time with us. He is always wanting more and more time with us. Because he likes us. And God's love for us is revealed probably most clearly in the outpouring of his grace. What, we, what is so undeserved by us, he keeps giving to us. People of Israel continually reject God over and over, hundreds, maybe thousands of times, millions of times. They keep rejecting God in every way possible that they can think of. And eventually, they end up in exile, and you would think God would say, okay, that's it. We all have to draw the line somewhere, right? We certainly do. We certainly say, hey, that's enough. That's, that, I, that, they've proved themselves to be unworthy. I, I've given enough of myself. I, I'm done. I'm walking away. In Jeremiah 31, God speaks to the exiles, these people who have rejected him and go into exile and continue to reject him. And he says to them, You're my people, and I'm going to bring you back. And I'm going to restore you. And we're going to wipe the slates clean. And we're going to start over. I'm going to forgive you because he is the God of not just second chances, not just thousandth chances, not just millionth chances, infinite chances. God doesn't ever give up on us. And that's so hard for us to grasp because we have created this image of God that looks like us and we give up all the time. all of us struggle with sin, with failure. And I suspect that we struggle with things not just once, but over and over again. And we fail and we come to God and repent and we fail again and we come to God and repent and we fail and we come back. And God keeps forgiving us. And it's different things for us because we wrestle with different things. It might be lying or cheating or some kind of sexual sin. It might be a habit that you just can't break. Anger, bitterness, unwillingness to forgive or wrestling with all these things. And we keep coming back to God and we have something in the back of our mind says, we're going to run out of chances. When I read the scriptures, I see God saying... If you repent, I'll forgive. We keep thinking that we're going to eventually wear God out. He's going to say, I'm done with you. He won't. He will never be done with us. His loving grace is continually calling us to repent. To forgiveness, and it doesn 't matter how many times we have wrestled with this, how long we 've wrestled with it, he keeps calling us to himself. You look at the parable of the prodigal son that we read earlier, or as probably a better title is the Prodigal Sons. Actually, probably the best title is what Tim Keller uses the Prodigal God. Because we see this image of God that is completely other than what the people of first century Palestine have ever seen in in a father, much less a God. This, This father who Jesus says represents God, lets his son take the inheritance and waste it. And when he comes back, what would we do? We would say, let's see you earn it. But this father runs to him before he gets to the house or has a chance to say anything and embraces him and brings him into the house and throws a party. And the other son sits out on the back step, moping and pouting because he didn't get a party. He's angry at the father and he's irritated with the father. And, you know, let's be honest, most of us are probably our experiences are probably more like the elder son than the younger son. And the father doesn't let him just sit out there on his own. He humiliates himself and walks outside and sits down by his son and says, let's talk about this. Come on in. And these sons are not controlling their father. The father has all the power in the relationship. Fathers always do in that culture. But he chooses to use his power to love. Offer grace and forgiveness. And the God who has all the power in our relationship with Him keeps coming to us, seeking us, yearning for us, wanting us. It's who He is, it's His nature, it's His character. See, we're, we so often want this God in our own image that we can put into a box, that we can control, that looks like us, because it's a lot more comfortable. The God we read about in the Scriptures, the one who says to Moses when he asked, who do I tell them sent me, and says, I am who I am, or as it's sometimes translated, I will be who I will be, says, you couldn't begin to explain me. Let me show you. I'm going to reveal myself to you. But however you act, how, whatever you do doesn't change who I am. Who I am is intended to change who you are and how you act and what you do and how you see yourself because I want to draw you out of bondage into freedom and life. And the call of God to us is to surrender, to trust. Trust is risky. Oh, man, you know, we, we, don't, we don't like to trust. We only trust if we can control the, the environment in which we trust. What kind of trust is that? God is saying, at some point, you have to come to believe that I am who I am. That what I tell you about myself is true. Will you trust? Will you believe? Will you surrender? Because if you are willing to do that, then you will find what deep in your soul you're really yearning for. Because you'll have me, of life, and the source of everything that you were created to experience. There's an old legend that um, people for years in the mountains of Nepal would tell each other. There's a legend of a a God made of wax up in the the cool air of the mountainside. The people would come from the village below and, and worship at this God made of wax And after a number of years of doing this, someone had the idea, why don't we bring that God down to the valley? Maybe we don't have to trudge up the mountain when we want to worship. It'll be more convenient. We can worship more often. And everyone thought, great idea. Let's do that. And so they carried this God of wax down the mountain into the valley. What they hadn't counted on was that the the temperature was much warmer in the valley than it was on the mountainside. And after a few days of sitting in the village, the God began to sag. They were very upset about that. And then someone had the idea that this could be an opportunity for good. There were people who didn't really like the, the image that the face on the God portrayed. And so they reshaped it in the malleable wax into an image that was much more appealing. And then some of them didn't like the body structure of this God. And so they they reshaped it into a structure that was much more appealing. And they thought, this is more like it. But it continued to sag in the heat. What they discovered is that once they had begun touching and shaping this God, it made touching it more and more that much easier. And they quickly moved from touching to Grabbing. And they began to pull off pieces of wax and, and take them home and use it to heat their houses and cook their food. And the people in the village would continually come and just grab off pieces of wax until one day they went to get it and all the wax was gone. And so was the God. Craig Barnes, who tells the story, says... when we create God in our own image eventually we end up with no God at all. We just end up with ourselves. And we have a choice. We can worship the God that We create, feels more comfortable, safer. Or we can choose to worship the awesome, often mysterious God who created us, loves us, is greater than us, totally other than us. And if God is who He says He is, is there really any risk in surrendering to Him and trusting Him? What comes to our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What God are we worshiping? Are we trusting? Father, in this moment of silence, as we ponder who you are and hear you speaking to us, give us an openness of mind and heart. God, we come today to declare that we want to worship you for who you are, not for who we may have created you to be. Help us to see you more clearly to surrender that we might know life, freedom, all that you have created us to be. And we pray this through Christ. Amen. Please stand and join me in the closing hymn from the forty nine.